now go to our passage, which comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. And Pastor Bill will be, reading, uh, will be preaching uh, Jesus the Restore, which is the title of the message. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was there in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. And he will not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And we are picking our, our series in the book of Mark again today. But before we do that, let me take a moment to encourage us. Last week, my wife Sally and I went to a memorial service friend of ours had her mother pass away several months earlier, and she was at a church that Sal and I have been part of in the past. I expected then to meet up with a bunch of people that we would know and, and reconnect. I was surprised to catch up with some people I didn't know. People came up to me and they asked, so, how's your church doing? How's your building search going? Do you have a place to meet yet? Apparently, our friend, who we were there to support and care for, has had her entire small group praying for our church, praying that God would provide a place for us to worship and meet together. Uh, and and apparently, they've, they've been praying about this a lot uh, on a very regular basis. And so I was very encouraged. This is one of those signs from God that you don't ask for, but one of those where God says, Renewal, I've got you. You don't need to worry, I care about you, and I care about you so much that I'm going to put you on the hearts and minds of people of a much larger church to come to me on a regular basis and ask me to care for you. And, and, and Renewal, I don't even feel like I need to let you know that. I was blown away by this. Now apparently, as I stated in the email that I sent out earlier, this seems like they're a righteous group as defined by the book of James chapter 5. Their prayers are powerful and effective because it really looks like we have that place where we're going to be able to gather indoors on a Sunday morning and worship together in a safe environment for those who are able to. Now there still are a few final steps to work out. I was hoping that we'd have all that cleared up today, but we're very confident that this is going to work out. And so just to review the schedule, next Sunday, May 30th, we're only going to have uh, 
virtual service at 10.30 in the morning. There is no in-person gathering in the afternoon. This is a soft launch. We're hoping to do that virtual stream from the new site. We'll have just a few people there uh, just so we can practice procedures, make sure that we've got all the kinks worked out, make sure that the streaming works okay. We'll evaluate during the rest of the week and fix anything that needs to be fixed. And then we will be able to be ready for a full in-person gathering indoors on June 6th at 10.30. And as Luke just mentioned, we'll also be streaming that live at 10.30. Uh, couple more details to work out as we finalize things. And so I'm coming to you right now asking that you would continue to pray. We have other churches apparently praying for us. Let's also pray that we'll be able to work these things out on our end and on, the other, uh, on this other place. And let me ask you also, make sure that you set aside some time to thank the Lord. This is not a little thing. We've looked at a lot of places. Luke has done an incredible amount of work going to a lot of different locations. We've discovered there's just not a lot out there that matches what we need. And we've also learned that what is out there is really expensive. It's important for us then to give thanks in all things, to remember that God does not owe us. And if he thought that what was best for us was to continue in a field like we've been, whether it's hot, cold, wet, whether we have to cancel, you realize it's still a whole lot easier than what he had the Israelites do wandering through the wilderness. God always does what is best for his people, what is best and necessary for them. It looks like what he's allowing is for us to have a place where we can gather indoors. So we need to make sure that we are thankful to him. Actually, we should probably be thankful that we've been able to live stream this entire past year, that we've had a place to gather several times since Easter, and that he has put us on other people's hearts and minds to pray for us. And then obviously that there is, seems to be a potential place for us. So please, I'm asking, make some time today to pray. Make some time over these next several days to continue praying, thanking the Lord for how good he is, and to continue to ask him that he would work out the final details so that we can gather again together safely in worship. Let me pause now and just pray for us. Lord, you have been incredibly good to us and very gracious. Lord, you have provided everything that we need. And Lord, it seems like you're giving us an awful lot of what we would like as well. And so, Lord, we are a grateful people. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have grumbled against you. Uh, and Lord, give us an enthusiasm for being able to worship as a body again um, and to come together around your throne. Please work out the details uh, that still need to get ironed out. Uh, and Lord, we look forward to anticipating that day when we will be able to be together again as a body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, back to Mark chapter 1. In this series, we are watching Jesus as he carries out his mission on this earth. And it's a mission that takes him into direct conflict with evil in all of its various forms. And so we're going to see him engage suffering, engage sin, engage the demonic realm. And we're seeing that that conflict is not accidental. That Jesus steps into it, that at times he even initiates it because he has an agenda. And this agenda weighs heavily on him. It, it drives him, gives him a sense of urgency. And if you were listening as Luke was reading through that passage, maybe you picked up on that urgency. Four times in that very short passage, Mark uses the word immediately. He also throws in it once in there just to sort of mix it up for us. And so as you're reading through this passage, the, the, the tone of the passage comes off as immediately, immediately, at once, immediately, immediately. There is an urgency here 
for something that Jesus is doing, something that just won't wait. Now, he started his mission earlier, verse 15, by saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The time has come. The time is now. There's this urgency that's moving him, an intentionality. We're watching a man who's on a mission. Then you start to ask, well, what is the mission? What is he doing? What is so important that really the only way that it makes sense to go about doing it is immediately and urgently? Three things that we can notice in today's passage. One, Jesus is restoring God's words to this world. Second, he's restoring the image of God to human beings. And thirdly, he's restoring harmony to the natural world. He's restoring God's word, restoring God's people, and restoring God's world. Let's dive in. First, he's restoring God's words to this world. Think about the synagogue there in verse 21. Ask yourself, who is there and what are they doing? Well, first there's Jesus, and Jesus is teaching. But he's not teaching like people are used to. They're used to their teachers citing tradition, citing authorities, and Jesus is not teaching like that. Instead, he speaks with authority. He doesn't cite authorities. He is the authority. And so he speaks in a way that says there's no arguing with what I'm saying. I don't have to argue for it. I don't have to give you arguments to convince you of it. I'm simply telling you what is. I'm telling you what is true. He speaks with authority. There's other passages where you can hear that kind of authority and what that would have sounded like, like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. That's where the Beatitudes comes from that we were just uh, using in our corporate confession of sin. In Matthew chapter 5, you start to hear this pattern where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so verse 21, for instance, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He speaks with authority. Or a little bit later, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if you go back to that whole sermon, you work your way through it, you're going to hear this pattern over and over and over again. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Over and over, he says, this is the way it is. This is how life is. This is how you have to think about life. This is how you have to live life. He comes speaking reliable, authoritative words that make sense of life, that govern people's lives. He speaks with authority, which makes sense. That's how God started his relationship with humanity. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God came to his people that he made, and he told them things. Told them things about himself, told them things about themselves, about how the... About what the world is like. He told them things that they could have no other way of knowing. God taught them authoritatively. He gave them words to shape their lives, words to live by. And yet, as you know, Adam and Eve rejected those words. Here's God's gracious response to that rejection. Thousands and thousands of years later, he comes in the flesh, speaking, speaking words, speaking authoritatively to people again. God has not stopped wanting to give us what we absolutely have to have, a correct way of understanding ourselves, of understanding this world, and of understanding our place in this world. 
and the people in the synagogue are blown away. Verse 22, they're astonished. That is such a strong word in the Greek that it's really hard to capture its meaning in a one-word translation. The Greek word there means to be so amazed as to be practically overwhelmed. Jesus' teaching is overwhelming. The people are overwhelmed as he teaches. He speaks with authority, and they can feel the power, they feel the force of him through what he's saying. And that's not normal. You know that. Good speakers are what? They're, they're fun to listen to. They keep you engaged. They keep you wanting to hear more. Really good ones can move you. They can stir you up, but overwhelm you. Make you feel like you can barely stand to hear anymore. That's what Jesus is doing there. There is something here with him that goes well beyond being a good speaker. And remember the setting here. He's not in a great big stadium surrounded by thousands of people. There's no crowd effect here. He doesn't have mood music playing in the background somewhere. The lights are not dimmed. There's no stage hit with lights and with banners. It's just in a simple synagogue on a Sabbath day in the middle of the day. There's nothing special about the setting. And yet the people are overwhelmed by what he's saying. When modern people say, Jesus, you know, he, he was a good teacher. They mean that as a compliment. But it shows that they have no idea what it was like to be taught by him. No idea what it was like to encounter him. He wasn't simply someone who was going around dispensing good advice. Not a traveling rabbi who just wanted to enhance your moral education, add a little bit of understanding to your world. Instead, the one who created the world by speaking it into being is standing there right now in the synagogue, speaking again. And there is so much God coming through in that moment, the people can hardly stand it. They know that something supernatural has just broken into their tidy service that morning, something that they didn't expect. And not only do they know it, the spiritual world of darkness also knows it. There's a man there in the synagogue among the people of God who's possessed by a demon. It means he no longer has control over his own mind or his body. He can't control what he says. And I want to take a 90-second aside here. We talk a lot at Renewal Mainline about naturalism. It's the philosophy that claims that everything that happens in this world can be explained by physical and natural laws. We talk about naturalism because it is the predominant underlying secular philosophy that the modern world uses to factor God out of his universe. And in that sense, it's the predominant modern alternative to a biblical worldview. It's the dominant cultural narrative that you cannot avoid in our society. It's taught in every one of your science classes. It's the philosophical underpinning for the modern humanities. And so we come to a passage like today that talks openly about a demonic being and the passage makes some of us uncomfortable. It doesn't fit within the naturalistic understanding of the world that we've been marinating in. And there's a temptation to explain it away because given our exposure to naturalism, this doesn't just feel weird, you know, like it's outside of our normal experience. It, it, it feels primitive, embarrassing. Like you really don't want your friends to come to church on the day that we're talking about demons. And we've been taught the right words to explain passages like this away, to say something like, oh, pre-modern cultures 
were not as sophisticated as we are now. And so we understand that what they called being possessed, that's really a mental health issue for which we have a whole array of solutions and interventions. Don't let yourself do that if you're tempted to do that. It's really condescending to other cultures and societies to assume that they could not tell the difference between a mental disorder and something taking over a human being. It's patronizing, don't do that. Besides which, it's a really narrow viewpoint. It's reductionist. It reduces people down to a single dimension, to thinking of them only as physical beings. Now, physicality obviously has its place. Human beings are physical beings. Our brains are physical. They can develop physical problems. A biblical worldview has room for that. But a biblical worldview is also larger than that. Biblical worldview is not simplistic. It's more robust. It says people are a mix. They are both physical and spiritual. And if you want to understand them well, then you have to take their spirituality into account as well as their physicality. In addition, you have to think in other dimensions as well. You have to consider them as social beings, beings who are impacted by other beings, which means that they are not simply impacted by other human beings, but other purely spirit beings which means that you have to take this larger spiritual world and its impact on people into account. That you cannot explain everything about a person or a person's experience until you do so. For instance, you cannot fully explain the animosity, the ethnic hatred, the societal tension of this past year by focusing only on individual sin or the evil that is embedded in our social structures and systems. You can't explain it by focusing on individual sinners or on societal sin alone. Those are both true. But you have to go beyond that to explain this last year. You have to go beyond that like the Bible does. If you want to understand and combat evil in this world, you have to take seriously that evil exists not only in individual people and in social structures, but as Ephesians 6 points out, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Recognizing the world of evil spiritual beings does not dismiss and it does not downplay the reality of individual or societal evil. But it says that the problem is actually bigger. And it says that there's even more that we have to deal with that we also have to deal with spiritual beings that are wholly corrupted. Evil powers that are not mere impersonal forces of wickedness, but who are individual persons of wickedness. Wicked persons who are committed to fighting God in his universe, committed to fighting God and to fighting everything that hints at and reminds them of God, especially human beings who are images of God. And there in the synagogue of Capernaum sits one of these evil spiritual beings who interrupts God as God is speaking. Now, why? Why interrupt? Why call attention to yourself? Isn't that kind of like asking God to destroy you, as the demon says in verse 24? Or at the least, to cast you out of the person that you've possessed like Jesus does? Why speak up? 
Apparently Jesus wasn't focused on the demon until this moment, so why start talking now? The key comes from Jesus saying, verse 25, be silent. It's not the only time that he does that. Verse 34 tells us that Jesus would not let any of the demons speak that he cast out later that night. But Jesus' insistence goes beyond this one day, this one town, and you start to get a pattern that is running through the book of Mark of Jesus not wanting anyone to talk about his identity. It starts with the demons here. It later extends to other people. It extends it even to the disciples. In chapter 8, Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and immediately, verse 30, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, there will come a time when Jesus goes public with his identity. But that's only later in chapters 14 and 15 at his trial before the high priests and at the cross. And it's only then when his identity is firmly linked to the cross, when it's clear that the Messiah came to die, only then does Jesus let people know and talk about who he really is. Until that moment, any other reference to the Messiah, the Holy One's just silenced. Why? Because it's going to be confusing. The people of that day expected the Messiah to come and straighten out their society, to be a mighty warrior who would kick out the Romans, to put right at what they saw as wrong, and they expected that here and now. And Jesus had a different mission, one that led him to the cross. He had a mission that could only be accomplished by the cross. And so he insisted that those who knew him, like this demon, keep quiet. And he insisted on silence so that they didn't confuse people about his mission. So that they didn't sidetrack people from what he was here to do by making people think things about him that weren't true. The demon has to be silent, so in that moment, it does not usurp what Jesus is saying. So that it doesn't grab the mic while Jesus is speaking and redirect the conversation, trying to get people to ignore God's words by paying attention to its own. That's the play the demon in the synagogue is making. By adding its voice to that day, it's adding a counter-narrative. and push God's words out. They adopted the serpent's values, the serpent's desires, and in that moment, 
They gave up their right to rule as images of God. Because instead of ruling over the serpent, they were ruled by him. They lived according to his words, not according to God's. So here we are in the synagogue, and the same war of words is taking place. God speaking one way, communicating to his images, his understanding of the world that he has made. And here's an emissary of the serpent speaking a different way, directing, directly challenging God and his narrative by offering a different narrative. The battleground's the same. It's for the hearts and the minds of the images of God. People whom God has made, people who should give their love and loyalty to God and God alone, but are being offered an alternative. Only this time Jesus, the second Adam, steps up and does what the first one should have done. He rules over the serpent. He silences the demon, tells him to shut up, won't let him continue to promote his narrative. And then Jesus gets rid of him, tells him to get out, won't let him keep inserting himself into the relationship between God and his people. And that is exactly what Adam should have done in the Garden of Eden. But where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He refused to be ruled by the serpent or by its attempts to take over the conversation. Jesus came to restore God's words to this world so that you and I can hear them correctly again. It's part of his mission. It's point one, why he came. Point two, more than restore God's words, Jesus also came to restore God's people. Jesus was not ruled by the demon, and he releases the person who was. He tells the demon, verse 25, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Human beings people made in the image of God, were meant to exercise dominion on this planet. We were meant to rule it, not be ruled by anything in it. As long as this man is possessed by the demon, he is not fulfilling his identity as God's image, and God is not okay with that. That is not a world that shows best God's glory. It's not what's best for humanity. A human being who is ruled by creation rather than ruling over it is not expressing God like God intended him to express God, like God intended him to be an image of God. Now here's another place where the naturalistic worldview challenges a biblical one. Because it insists that there is no real difference, there is no necessary distinction between humanity and the rest of the animal kingdom. And so it sees no problem with blurring the line between the two. I don't know if you saw this, but last month a report came out. Scientists had taken human stem cells and injected them into a uh, primate embryo. And they produced this human monkey chimera, this set of cells that were both, that then lived for several days. Now what is that? That is a rejection of a biblical worldview. That's a worldview that says humans are fundamentally the same as any other species. And they can be ruled over, they can be treated like any other part of this creation. So we can blur them with the rest of creation, we can mix them together, and there is no loss to humanity. There's only potential gain. And God disagrees. God disagrees so strongly that he took his infinity and squeezed himself 
into a human body so that he could walk among us and restore his image to us and restore his image in us so that we are not ruled by the rest of the world because we are not like the rest of the world. We're not made to be just like the rest of the world. There is a distinction between us and the rest of the world that you and I have to keep very clear. And God helps us keep that clear when he became human in order to restore the image of God to humanity. Did that with the man with the demon in the synagogue. He does that with Peter's mother-in-law in her home. She has a fever, something that is so bad that it's ruling over her and controlling her so badly she can't even get up when Jesus comes into her home. He has to go to her. And I want you to make sure that you, actually, that you see this and, and think about this. Here's the heart of God for people. He does go to her. He's gentle with her. Verse 31, he takes her by the hand. He lifts her up and what? The fever leaves her. This thing that elevated itself over a human being, this thing that controlled her and what she could and couldn't do, it leaves her. And in its place is a fully restored image of God. Do you ever have a fever like that? One that was so debilitating you couldn't even get up? You remember how long it took you to regain your strength? It's at least a number of hours, right? Probably more like several days. Not here. This lady immediately starts to serve them. What did Jesus do? He fully restored her imageness to her. She is now in control of herself, and she takes charge of her home. She orders the home in the way that she thinks it should be ordered so that it what? It becomes a place of blessing to others. Make sure you see this. Jesus came to this earth to give that ability back to her. He came not only, point one, to restore God's authoritative words to us, but also, point two, to restore our humanity to us so that we can once again rule over this world like God would so that we can take charge of it in a way that's beneficial. Jesus also came, point three, to restore the physical world to what it should be so that there's harmony in the natural world. A lot of other passages in Scripture that speak to this much more in depth. We studied a couple of those during Advent season when we were looking at the prophet Isaiah. But you get hints of that kind of restoration here too. That night, verse 33, the whole city was gathered at the door. You'd think, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Here's someone who can restore human beings, who can make them whole. Of course they're going to flock to him. Verse 34, that night he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Demons we've already talked about, various diseases, various things that were painful, things that limited people's ability to live life, that affected their quality of life, things that could even lead to death. Things that were caused by something going wrong inside their body or by something that they had picked up from their environment, things that, what, that ruled them, that controlled what they could and couldn't do. Now, that's just part of living in a cursed world, right? That is not the normal world that God envisioned. This world is not supposed to be inhospitable to people who are made in God's image. Disease and sickness are not harmonious ways of living here, and when the Son of God encountered them, he undid their effect on people. He restored harmony between people and their world, and he did it where? Down at the microscopic level. Think about God's attention to detail here. He cared so much about these people that he dealt with pathogens, 
He dealt with their, their internal cellular structure. Do you start to get a sense of the extent of God's restoration plans for this world, of his restoration plans for you? He's making this world a hospitable place again, a place that welcomes and works with us instead of fighting against us. Jesus took seriously that as a human being, he was supposed to rule over whatever happens in his part of, his, of the planet. And so he orders demons out when he encounters them. He heals people of what's wrong for the people who come to him while restoring God's words to them. He took his humanity seriously to rule this world for the good of all. So last question today. Why become human at all? If he loved us so much that he wanted to restore us, why not just do that without becoming human? The answer is that it's because restoring this world is a lot harder than we think it is. Think about it. If all he had to do to restore this world was to teach us with authority, he could have done that without a human body, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. If all he had to do to restore us was supernaturally heal people and change this world, he could have done that without a human body. He made our bodies. If all he had to do to restore this world was judge the demons and the demonic world, he could have done that without a human body. But God thought that a human body was absolutely necessary. Why? What is it that God could not do unless he had a human body? And the answer is, he couldn't suffer and die. The road to restoration runs straight through the cross. Jesus came on an urgent mission. He entered into our world to give us back what we lost. He entered into this world to give you back what you lost and to give you a glimpse of this incredible future that he has planned for all of his people. A restored you in a restored world with a fully restored relationship to the God who made you. But that rest restoration could only happen if Jesus first laid down the authority that he had, the authority that astonished and amazed people. Could only happen if instead of speaking authoritatively, he went silent and he refused to answer or defend himself when he was accused at his trial. Restoration could only happen if he let others rule over him and his body and destroy it after he spent his life making other bodies whole. Restoration could only happen if Satan entered one of his disciples and prompted Judas to betray Jesus, and Jesus did nothing to stop it. You realize Jesus laid down his authority for his own sake. He didn't speak, he didn't heal, he didn't rule to make his life better. He didn't do that to rescue himself, even though he could have. Instead, he held himself back to restore us. And that's the price of restoration. It takes the second Adam to die in order to pay for the first Adam's failure, his failure to rule well over this world. It takes the death of the second Adam to pay for every one of your failures and mine ever since that time. The world doesn't believe that. It doesn't believe that restoration is all that difficult, that it requires this kind of price. Remember a number of years ago, I read a book. It was supposed to be a biographical work that tracked one woman's experience living with an Aboriginal tribe. I think it was Australia. 
And she described not only the harmony among the tribe, but also their harmony, their ability to work well with the larger world, and their harmony with a very tangible divine presence. She described a connection between the people that was so close they could communicate with each other without words, that they loved each other, they cared well for each other and for her. My sister read the same book at that time, and she asked me what I thought. I said something along the lines of, it's really wonderful, but there's no Jesus in it. There's no cross. There's no recognition that there is something so broken in these people that it has to be atoned for. There's no need of redemption. There's an amazing utopia. There's a connectedness that I long for but it avoids the necessity of the cross. And so I don't trust it. Why would Jesus come to this earth to die if that was not absolutely necessary? See, the world will try to sell you on this idea that you can have ultimate peace and harmony with others without a God who will sacrifice himself for you, who will not have to restore you at great personal cost to himself. Please don't believe the world when it tells you something like that. Jesus, this astonishing, powerful teacher, was not so foolish that he ended up doing something that he really didn't have to. Hang on to the cross. Hang on to a God who wants you this badly to take himself to the cross. Hang on to how much he loves you, how much he wants you. Hang on to him even when you have to deny yourself and take up your own cross to follow him when he calls you to do that. Hang on to the cross when his way of restoring you leads you to your own cross. When you have to sacrifice what you want and what you could have for the sake of other images of God who have not yet been restored. Hang on to the cross because you'll get resurrection as well. You'll get an eternity of Jesus. An eternity of being with this God who loves you so much that he would wreck his own life in order to restore yours. Lord God, you have given us such an amazing salvation. And Lord, you didn't simply come and give us two or three verses and tell us to repent. Lord, you came and you showed us what it was that you were doing. This incredibly deep restoration of a relationship between you and us, where you are removing every single thing that would get in the way where you're telling us what the future will be like with you. Lord, open our hearts, move us like only your authoritative words can to come to you, to want you more than we've ever wanted anything, maybe more than we've ever wanted you before. Lord, release us to be able to talk to you, to tell you that we love you, to tell you that we want more of you, to sing to you now, to praise, to worship because you are worth all of it in Jesus' name.